Chapter One of With Her in Our Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. With Her in Our Land by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Chapter One The Return. The three of us, all with set faces of high determination, sat close in the big biplane as we said goodbye to her land, and rose whirring from the level rock on that sheer edge. We went up first and made a wide circuit that my wife, Elidor, might have a view of her own beloved land to remember. How green and fair and flower-brightened it lay below us. The little cities, the thick-dotted villages, the scattered hamlets and wide parks of grouped houses lay again beneath our eyes, as when we three men had first set our astonished masculine gaze on this ultra-feminine land. Our long visit, the kind care and judicious education given us, even though under restraint, and our months of freedom and travel among them made it seem to me like leaving a second home. The beauty of the place was borne in upon me anew as I looked down on it. It was a garden, a great cultivated park, even to its wildest forested borders, and the cities were ornaments to the landscape, thinning out into delicate lace-like tracery of scattered buildings as they merged into the open country. Terry looked at it with set teeth. He was embittered through and through, and but for Elidor I could well imagine the kind of things he would have said. He only made this circuit at her request, as one who said, Oh, well, an hour or two more or less, it's over anyhow. Then the long gliding swoop as we descended to our sealed motorboat in the lake below. It was safe enough. Perhaps the savages had considered it some deadly witch-work and avoided it. At any rate, save for some dents and scratches on the metal cover, it was unhurt. With some careful labor, Terry working with a feverish, joyful eagerness, we got the machine dissembled and packed away, pulled in the anchors, and with well-applied oiling, started the long-disused motor, and moved off toward the great river. Elidor's eyes were on the towering cliffs behind us. I gave her the glass, and as long as we were on the open water, her eyes dwelt lovingly on the high rocky border of her home. But when we shot under the arching gloom of the forest, she turned to me with a little sigh and a bright, steady smile. "'That's goodbye,' she said. Now it's all looking forward to the big new world, the real world, with you. Terry said very little. His heavy jaw was set. His eyes looked forward eagerly, determinedly. He was polite to Elidor, and not impolite to me, but he was not conversational. We made the trip as fast as was consistent with safety, faster sometimes, living on our canned food and bottled water, stopping for no fresh meat, shooting down the ever-widening river toward the coast. Elidor watched it all with eager, childlike interest. The freshness of mind of these Herland women concealed their intellectual power. I never quite got used to it. We are so used to seeing our learned men cold and solemn, holding themselves far above all the enthusiasm of youth, that it is hard for us to associate a high degree of wisdom and intellectual power with vivid interest in immediate events. Here was my wife from Wonderland, leaving all she had ever known, a lifetime of peace and happiness and work she loved, and a whole nation of friends, as far as she knew them, 
and starting out with me for a world which i frankly told her was full of many kinds of pain and evil she was not afraid it was not sheer ignorance of danger either i had tried hard to make her understand the troubles she would meet neither was it a complete absorption in me far from it in our story-books we read always of young wives giving up all they have known and enjoyed for his sake that was by no means elidor's position she loved me that i knew but by no means with that engrossing absorption so familiar to our novelists and their readers her attitude was that of some high ambassador sent on an important and dangerous mission she represented her country and that with a vital intensity we can hardly realize she was to meet and learn a whole new world and perhaps establish connections between it and her own dear land as terry held to his steering grim and silent that feverish eagerness in his eyes and a curb on his usually ready tongue elidor would sit in the bow leaning forward chin on her hand her eyes ahead far ahead down the long reaches of the winding stream with an expression such as one could imagine on columbus she was glad to have me near her i was not only her own in a degree she herself did not yet realize but i was her one link with the homeland so i sat close and we talked much of the things we saw and more of what we were going to see her short soft hair curly in the moist air rippling back from her bright face as we rushed along gave the broad forehead and clear eyes a more courageous look than ever that finely cut mobile mouth was firmly set though always ready to melt into a tender smile for me now van my dear she said one day as we neared the coast town where we hoped to find a steamer please don't worry about how all this is going to affect me you have been drawing very hard pictures of your own land and of the evil behavior of men so that i shall not be disappointed or shocked too much i won't be dear i understand that men are different from women must be but i am convinced that it is better for the world to have both men and women than to have only one sex like us we have done the best we could we women all alone we have made a nice little safe clean garden place and lived happily in it but we have done nothing whatever for the rest of the world we might as well not be there for all the good it does anyone else the savages down below are just as savage for all our civilization now you even if you were as you say driven by greed and sheer love of adventure and fighting you have gone all over the world and civilized it not all dear i hastily put in not nearly all there are ever so many savages left yes i know that i remember the maps and all the history and geography you have taught me it was a never-ending source of surprise to me the way those herland women understood and remembered it must have been due to their entirely different system of education there was very much less put into their minds from infancy up and what was there seemed to grow there to stay in place without effort all the new facts we gave them they had promptly hung up in the right places like arranging things in a large well-planned not overfilled closet and they knew where to find them at once i can readily see she went on that our pleasant collective economy is like that of bees and ants and such co-mothers and that a world of fathers does not work as smoothly as that we have observed of course among animals that the instincts of the male are different from those of the female and that he likes to fight 
but think of all you have done. That was what delighted Elidor. She was never tired of my stories of invention and discovery, of the new lands we had found, the mountain ranges crossed, the great oceans turned into highways, and all the wonders of art and science. She loved it, as did Desdemona the wild tales of her lover, but with more understanding. It must be nobler to have two, she would say, her eyes shining. We are only half a people. Of course we love each other and have advanced our own little country, but it is such a little one, and you have the world. We reached the coast in due time, and the town. It was not much of a town, dirty and squalid enough, with lazy half-breed inhabitants for the most part. But this I had carefully explained, and Elidor did not mind it, examining everything with kind, impartial eyes, as a teacher would examine the work of atypical children. Terry loved it. He greeted that slovenly, ill-built, idle place with ardor, and promptly left us to ourselves for the most part. There was no steamer. None had touched there for many months, they said. But there was a sailing vessel which undertook for sufficient payment to take us and our motorboat with its contents to a larger port. Terry and I had our belts with gold and notes. He had letters of credit, too, while Elidor had brought with her not only a supply of gold, but a little bag of rubies which I assured her would take us several times around the world, and more. The money system in her land was mainly paper, and their jewels, while valued for decoration, were not prized as ours are. They had some historic treasure chests, rivaling those of India, and she had been amply supplied. After some delay, we set sail. Terry walked the deck, more eager as the days passed. Elidor, I am sorry to say, proved a poor sailor, as was indeed to be expected, but made no fuss about her disabilities. I told her it was almost unescapable, unpleasant but not dangerous, so she stayed in her berth, or sat wrapped mummy fashion on the deck, and suffered in patience. Terry talked a little more when we were out of her hearing. Do you know they say there's a war in Europe, he told me. A war? A real one, or just the Balkans? A real one, they say. Germany and Austria against the rest of Europe, apparently. Began months ago, no news for a long time. Oh, well, it will be over before we reach home, I guess. Lucky for us, we are Americans. But I was worried for Elidor. I wanted the world, my world, to look its best in her eyes. If those women, alone and unaided, had worked out that pleasant, peaceful, comfortable civilization of theirs, with its practical sisterliness and friendliness all over the land, I was very anxious to show her that men had done at least as well, and in some ways better, men and women, that is. And here we had gotten up a war, a most undesirable spectacle for an international guest. There was a missionary on board, a thin, almost emaciated man of the Presbyterian denomination. He was a most earnest person, and a great talker, naturally. Woe unto me, he would say, if I preach not this gospel. And he preached it in season and out of season. Elidor was profoundly interested. I tried to explain to her that he was an enthusiast of a rather rigid type, and that she must not judge Christianity too harshly by him but she quite reassured me. Don't be afraid, my dear boy. I remember your outline of the various religions, all about how Christianity arose and spread. 
how it held together in one church for a long time and then divided and kept on dividing, naturally. And I remember about the religious wars and persecutions that you used to have in earlier ages. We had a good deal of trouble with religion in our first centuries, too. And for a long time, people kept appearing with some sort of new one they had had revealed to them, just like yours. But we saw that all that was needed was a higher level of mentality and a clear understanding of the real laws. So we worked toward that. And as you know, we have been quite at peace as to our religion for some centuries. It's just part of us. That was the clearest way of putting it she had yet thought of. The Herland religion was like the manners of a true aristocrat, a thing unborn and inbred. It was the way they lived. They had so clear and quick a connection between conviction and action that it was well-nigh impossible for them to know a thing and not do it. I suppose that was why, when we had told them about the noble teachings of Christianity, they had been so charmed, taking it for granted that our behavior was equal to our belief. The Reverend Alexander Murdoch was more than pleased to talk with Elidor. Any man would be, of course. He was immensely curious about her, too, but even to impertinent questions, she presented an amiable but absolute impermeability. From what country do you come, Mrs. Jennings? He asked her one day in my hearing. He did not know I was within earshot, however. Elidor was never annoyed by questions, nor angry, nor confused. Where most people seem to think that there is no alternative but to answer correctly or to lie, she recognized an endless variety of things to say or not say. Sometimes she would look pleasantly at the inquirer with those deep, kind eyes of hers and ask, Why do you wish to know? Not sarcastically, not offensively at all, but as if she really wanted to know why they wanted to know. It was generally difficult for them to explain the cause of their curiosity, but if they did, if they said it was just interest, kindly human interest in her, she would thank them for the interest and ask if they felt it about everyone. If they said they did, she would say, still with her quiet gentleness, And is it customary, when one feels interested in a stranger, to ask them questions? I mean, is it a what, what you call a compliment? If so, I thank you heartily for the compliment. If they drove her, some people never will take a hint, she would remain always quite courteous and gentle, even praise them for their perseverance, but never say one word she did not choose to. And she did not choose to give to anyone news of her beloved country until such time as that country decided it should be done. The missionary was not difficult to handle. Did you not say that you were to preach the gospel to all nations? or all people, or something like that, she asked him. Do you find some nations easier to preach to than others, or is it the same gospel to all? He assured her that it was the same, but that he was naturally interested in all his hearers, and that it was often important to know something of their antecedents. This, she agreed, might be an advantage, and left it at that, asking him if he would let her see his Bible. Once he was embarked on that subject, she had only to listen and to steer the conversation, or rather the monologue. I told her I had overheard this bit of conversation, begging her pardon for listening, but she said she would greatly enjoy having me with her while he talked. I told her I doubted if he would talk as freely if there were three of us, 
and she suggested in that case that if i were as interested i was quite welcome to listen as far as she was concerned of course i wasn't going to be an eavesdropper even on a missionary trying to convert my wife but i heard a good bit of their talk as i strolled about and sat with them sometimes he let her read his precious flexible oxford bible at times giving her marked passages and she read about a hundred times as much as he thought she could in a given time it interested her immensely and she questioned him eagerly about it you call this the word of god yes he replied solemnly it is his revealed word and everything it says is true it is truth itself divine truth he answered you do not mean that god wrote it oh no he revealed it to his servants it is an inspired book it was written by many people was it not yes many people but the same word and at different times oh yes the revelation was given at long intervals the Old Testament to the Jews, the New Testament to us all. Elidor turned the pages reverently. She had a great respect for religion and for any sincere person. How old is the oldest part, she asked him. He told her as best he could, but he was not versed in the latest scholarship and had a genuine horror of the higher criticism. But I supplied a little information on the side when we were alone telling her of the patchwork group of ancient legends which made up the first part, of the very human councils of men who had finally decided which of the ancient writings were inspired and which were not, of how the book of Job, the oldest of all, had only scraped in by one vote, and then, with a rather malicious relish, of that most colossal joke of all history, how the Song of Songs, that amorous, not to say salacious, ancient love lyric, had been embraced with the others and interpreted as a mystical lofty outburst of devotion with that black but comely light of love figuring as the church elidor was quite shocked but van he ought to know that you ought to tell him is it generally known it is known to scholars not to the public as a whole but they still have it bound in with the others and think it is holy when it isn't yes i grinned the joke is still going on what have the scholars done about it she asked oh they have worked out their proof shown up the thing and let it go at that wasn't there any demand from the people who knew to have it taken out of the bible there isn't one edition of the bible now printed in all the separate books a whole shelf full of little ones instead of one big one i should think that would be much better she said but the other one is still printed and sold printed and sold and given away by hundreds of thousands with the joke going right on she was puzzled it was not so much the real outside things we did which she found it hard to understand but the different way our minds worked in her land if a thing like that had been discovered the first effort of all their wisest students would have been to establish the facts when they were sure about it they would have then taken the rather shameful old thing out of its proud position among the sacred books at once they would have publicly acknowledged their mistake rectified it and gone on you'll have to be very patient with me van dearest 
It's going to take me a long time to get hold of your psychology. But I'll do my best. Her best was something amazing, and she would have come to her final conclusions far earlier, but for certain firm preconceptions that we were somehow better, nobler, than we were. The Reverend Murdoch kept at her pretty steadily. He started in at the beginning, giving her the full circumstantial account of the temptation, the fall, and the curse. She listened quietly with no hint in her calm face of what she might be thinking. But when he came to the punishment of the serpent, Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dost shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. She asked a question. Will you tell me, please, how did the serpent go before? Mr. Murdoch looked at her. He was reading in a deep, sorrowful voice, his mind full of the solemn purport of the great tragedy. What was his method of locomotion before he was cursed? asked Elidore. He laid down the book in some annoyance. It is believed that the serpent walked erect, that he stood like a man, that he was Satan himself, he replied. But it says... Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field, doesn't it? And the picture you showed me is of a snake in the tree. The picture is, as it were, allegorical, he replied. It is not reverent to question the divine account like this. She did not mind this note of censure, but asked further, As a matter of fact, do snakes eat dust, or is that allegorical too? How do you know which is allegorical and which is fact? Who decides? They had rather a stormy discussion on that point. At least the missionary was stormy. He was unable to reconcile Elidor's gentle courtesy with her singular lack of reverence for mere statements. But our theological discussions were summarily ended, and Elidor reduced to clinging to her birth by a severe storm. It was not a phenomenal hurricane by any means, but a steady lashing gale, which drove us far out of our course, and so damaged the vessel that we could do little but drive before the wind. There's a steamer, said Terry, on the third day of heavy weather, and as we watched the drift of smoke on the horizon, we found it was nearing us, and none too soon. By the time they were within hailing distance, our small vessel ran up signals of distress, for we were leaking heavily, and we were thankful to be taken off, even though the steamer, a Swedish one, was bound for Europe instead of America. They gave us better accommodations than we had had on the other, and eagerly took on board our big motorboat and biplane. Too eagerly, I thought. Elidor was greatly interested in the larger ship, the big blonde men, and in their talk. I prepared her as well as I could. They had good maps of Europe, and I filled in her outlines of history as far as I was able, and told her of the war. Her horror at this was natural enough. We have always had war, Terry explained, ever since the world began. At least as far as history goes, we have had war. It is human nature. Human? asked Elidor. Yes, he said, human. Bad as it is, it is evidently human nature to do it. Nations advance, the race is improved by fighting. It is the law of nature. Since our departure from Herland, Terry had rebounded like a rubber ball from all its influences, 
even his love for alima he was evidently striving to forget with some success as for the rest he had never studied the country and its history as i had nor accepted it like jeff and now he was treating it all as if it really was what he had often called it to me a bad dream he would keep his word in regard to telling nothing about it that virtue was his at any rate but in his glad reaction his delighted return a man in a world of men he was now giving information to elidor in his superior way as if she was a totally ignorant stranger and this war seemed almost to delight him yes he repeated you will have to accept life as it is to make war is human activity are some of the soldiers women she inquired women of course not they are men strong brave men once in a while some abnormal woman becomes a soldier i believe and in dahomey that's in africa one of the black tribes have women soldiers but speaking generally it is men of course then why do you call it human nature she persisted if it was human wouldn't they both do it so he tried to explain that it was a human necessity but it was done by the men because they could do it and the women couldn't the women are just as indispensable in their way they give us the children you know men cannot do that to hear terry talk you would think he had never left home elidor listened to him with her grave gentle smile she always seemed to understand not only what one said but all the background of sentiment and habit behind do you call bearing children human nature she asked him it's woman's nature he answered it's her work then why do you not call fighting man nature instead of human terry's conclusion of an argument with elidor was the simple one of going somewhere else so off he went to enjoy himself in the society of those sturdy scandinavians and we two sat together discussing war to be continued End of chapter 1